Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a great guest. Um, He's the son of Rupert Sheldrake, who I have interviewed, a prominent scientist. This is Merlin Sheldrake. Uh, He's a biologist and a writer with a background in plant sciences, microbiology, ecology, and the history and philosophy of science. Uh, He received a PhD in tropical ecology from Cambridge University for his work on underground fungal ne- networks in tropical forests in Panama. That's where he was a pre-doctoral research fellow uh, of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. So we're going to talk about Merlin's new book, which is really well-written. A lot of science books um, can be dry or interesting. This one reads, at least to me, as a, I don't know, it's just a really interesting novel. It's a, The writing is good in itself, in addition to the subject matter. So uh, it's called Entangled Life, and it's about... Uh, how fungi make our wor- worlds and uh, change our minds and shape our futures. They're, they're everywhere. So, Merlin, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me, what, what sparked your interest in the fungal world and when did that happen? You know, what's a little bit about your background? So, there are several routes into my fascination with these organisms. Um, when I was young, I was always always interested in the way that things transform how do things change how does a how does a solid log become soil how does a seed turn into a plant um how does a pile of leaves you know rot i was interested in these transformations and and fungi are prodigious decomposers and so lots of roots led me towards fungi and other microbes that decompose and rearrange the world and also when I got older, I became very interested in symbiosis, which is the living together, the intimate sharing of bodily space um, with quite unlike organisms, organisms that might be quite unrelated to each other. And so um, in inquiring after symbiosis, I was bumped into fungi all the time because fungi have been major players in some of the blockbuster symbioses that have shaped the planet and shaped the history of life. So that was another way in. And that's what got me started thinking about these symbiotic fungal networks that uh, that connect with tree roots and which nourish plants and which plants nourish in return. And that's what I spent most of my research career working on. Are there um, plants that don't have any fungi associated with them and, you know, or at least in lab conditions or natural conditions? It's a good question. So there are, so there are lots of different types of fungi that associate with plants. Some live in their roots and extend outwards from their roots lace outwards from their roots into a kind of fine mesh in the soil and help them absorb nutrients and water. Um, there are some types of plants that don't depend on these fungi, um, that don't have specialized relationships with these fungi. But, but it's very rare that you find plants with no fungi in their roots. Some plants have no specialized relationships with these fungi, but they still have fungi in their roots that people aren't quite sure what they're doing. But there's fungi also that crowd into plants' leaves and stems um, called fungal endophytes. And no plant grown in natural conditions has been found without these plants, without these fungi. So really we can think of fungi as a 
fundamental part of planthood. And they have really been there since the beginning, since plants migrated out of, or the ancestors of plants migrated out of fresh water and onto the land. Fungi help with that transition. And so, um, in fact, fungi are a more fundamental part of planthood than, than roots, even, certainly of leaves or wood. Huh. How would you know that they're more fundamental than, than roots themselves, the leaves? So people, people have done um, the, there are fossils from around 400 million years ago. Um, and that's after plants. So at that point, plants had roots, um, early types of roots. And you can see in those roots, these fungi, um, these fungi living very much as they do today. But before that point, when algae started first moving onto the land, these were just puddles of photosynthetic tissue. You know, they didn't have specialized structures and organs. They weren't adapted for life on land. Roots are something you need if you're living on land. So in these earliest encounters, fungi, which were already on land and which are experts at exploring and digesting solid material, the ground, um, they behaved as these plants' root systems um, before these early plants evolved roots. So we know this because we know that roots didn't evolve for some time. And we know this because um, we're pretty sure that these fungal associations were going on before we know roots evolved. Do I would think that big farming operations and farmers in general would take into account, you know, fungi in terms of preparing the soil or, you know, planting their plants and, and growing their crops, but do they? Or do they ignore it and think that they can just, you know, if they have nutrients in the soil and plants, they're good enough? That's a really good question. I think the clearest analogy is the way that we, the medical, um, the medical system and our medical knowledge has its relationship with microbes. So for much of the 20th century, germs or microbes were considered to be disease, agents of disease or parasites. We would now recognize that view as dangerously narrow as we found, as we've been able to describe these microbial communities using DNA sequencing techniques. We found that these are actually, many of them are essential partners. They guide our development, they affect our behavior, they help us digest food. Without these microbes living inside us, we wouldn't be able to do what we do or behave as we do. So having spent lots of our time trying to kill these microbes that live in and around us, we've actually done a lot to cause diseases. You know, there's, there's links between allergies and sterile environments um, and all sorts of problems happen when people have strong courses of antibiotics that disrupt their gut microflora. So the analogy with soils is that for much of the 20th century, people have spent time trying to um, treating the soil as a lifeless place, as if it was a place that um, all that mattered was nutrients and water. And of course, this is not the case. The soil is bustling with life, and many of these microbes are essential for plant health. And so we're in a difficult situation now precisely because agricultural practices have not taken account of the life of the soil, have disrupted and actually seriously disrupted a lot of the microbial communities, fungal, bacterial, and other that support plant growth and support um, food production. So there's a turn now towards incorporating microbes um, and microbial awareness into agricultural techniques so that we can help to undo some of the damage that we've caused. So I mean, would it make sense to culture certain fungi and then crop dust the field with spores, for instance? You know, so there's a number of... 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of approaches. So some people are thinking about it like that. You can buy all sorts of um, fungal inoculum products, and some of these may be effective in some circumstances. Um, a lot of them may not be effective. It's a bit like the big, the booming market for human probiotics, um, many of which are not, they're, they're Z-listers in your gut, and they're being sold as probiotics, not because they're the best bacteria to put in your gut, but because they're easy to produce in manufacturing facilities. So it's a bit like that with some of these fungal inocula that you can buy to um, use on your plants or put on your fields. These these might be species that don't respond well to those conditions that aren't ecologically matched to that environment, um, and they might cause more harm than good. So there are other approaches that are more more like fecal transplants. You know, if you have a um, it's a growing um, treatment in in human medicine where you take uh, fecal fecal matter from someone with a healthy gut flora and you transplant that into someone who has a damaged or disrupted gut flora, and so. By analogy, you could think about taking whole soil mixtures from healthy environments and using those to inoculate um, other environments. But the main idea is that not all microbes are the same and you want to have a good match, a good fit. It's like you can't just take any type of plant and throw it anywhere and expect it to thrive. And it's a bit like that with microbes. We get into trouble when we think about them as all the same. Hmm. Um, how many different uh, you know, fungi are associated with, I don't know, let's say the common plants we know with, with wheat or with uh, you know i guess with wheat let's say has that been studied or even looked at you know is there just is there one typically for the root system is there another one for the leaves and you know are there are any more critical than others yeah so there are more more common and less common species um so it so for wheat people have looked at this and and you have um you have some species which are able to grow in the roots of highly bred wheat varieties, but some species of fungi just can't grow in those varieties of plants because we've been selecting these varieties of plants to grow fast when we fertilize them a lot. But the plants that grow fast when you fertilize them a lot might not be the plants that are able to form well-balanced symbiotic relationships with fungi. It's not, you know, these relationships are highly managed, intricately balanced affairs. They're not just um, casual, things and so some plant varieties so a lot of our highly bred strains of wheat are actually not very good at forming high functioning symbioses and don't fall into healthy relationships with fungi um, in general most of these root fungi called mycorrhizal fungi um, they're not very specific so you can have um, mycorrhizal fungi that can form relationships with lots of different types of plants and lots of different types of plant can form relationships with different fungal strains. So both plants and fungi tend to be promiscuous, although you do have specialization in, in some cases. Well, I also read that um, the mycorrhizal fungi tend to form a, you call it a wood wide web, you know, where let's say trees are able to, I guess, communicate with each other through the fungal network. Is that the case? Yeah. So, th so it is one of the, the really fascinating aspects of these symbioses. So because plants are promiscuous and because fungi are promiscuous so one fungal individual can connect with multiple plants and one plant can connect with multiple fungi it means that you can have these overlapping networks where what no multiple plants can be joined by a single fungus exactly and so the wood wide web is the term that people have used to describe this phenomenon 
Um, and, and through these networks, indeed, in some cases, um, resources can pass between plants, like carbon-containing energy compounds, like sugars, um, and also uh, other nutrients, like nitrogen and phosphorus. And as you say, um, signals, in some cases, uh, they've done some amazing experiments have been done where bean plants grown either connected to each other or not connected to each other through a fungal network. And one bean plant exposed to a pest, an aphid pest. And when its connected plant, its partner plant connected through the fungus um, was challenged with the aphids, it had already upregulated its defense. It had already prepared itself for attack because somehow through this shared network, it had been warned um, by some means, likely a chemical, but we're not totally sure what it is exactly. So yes, yeah, so you can think about this as a kind of information transfer between plants, um, although we don't quite know how this happens um, or who's in control. You know, is it the plant in control? Is it the sender plant in control, the donor plant or the receiver plant in control? Or is it the fungus that's in control? Well, have there been experiments done? Let's say I have, I don't know, a row of uh, tomato plants, you know, 20 of them in a row, and I take the leftmost one and expose it to a certain beetle or some other you know, attacker, an ant, and then look at the 20th one all the way in the other end of the row, five minutes later, can I measure an upregulation and certain defenses, et cetera, and, you know, and then reverse it and see what happens. This is exactly what people are doing right now, um, calling them daisy chains. <laughs> so these are these daisy chain plants arranged in a relay, right? This is, this is what we really want to know. How fast is, can this information travel from plant to plant to plant? And if so, how far can it travel? Um, and can it travel between different types of plants? And, if this is happening, and this is, these are all experiments in pots, I mean, what's happening in the wild busyness of an ecosystem uh, with trees and small plants and all sorts of other organisms living, what's going on there? How is this shaping or directing the behavior of whole stands of trees? We don't know these things. It's very hard to investigate these networks in the field. So much of what we know comes from these controlled environments. Um, but so the answer to your daisy chain question is, I don't know because the results aren't out yet, but people are doing this experiment. We're really at the beginning of a whole new field of research here. So there are a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, also another experiment would be if you had a bunch of different plants and you, you know, you seeded the soil that they're all in with the mycorrhizal fungi. Um, is there interspecies plant communication? And if so, what's the nature of it? And how does it change competition if you have certain plants that, uh, Maybe you have two plants that wouldn't normally grow well together, and maybe with the mycorrhizal fungi, they do grow better together, or ones that work together, I don't know, just facilitates communication. It's, it'll be interesting to do a lot of experimentation with this. So some of these experiments have been done, and it's interesting, in some networks, so people often talk about the wood wide web as some kind of utopia, and in some cases, for sure, plants benefit from being linked in a shared network. But there are other situations with different types of mycorrhizal fungus where it actually doesn't benefit plants to be linked in a shared mycorrhizal network because exactly as you say, these fungi can mod modulate the competition between plants. So you can have a situation where a small plant connected to a big plant by a fungus is actually losing out by being connected because the big plant sucks a bigger proportion of the nutrients out of the network more than its fair share, if you want to use those terms. But the small plant actually starts doing better if you sever its connection to the network because then it doesn't have to compete with this 
big plant. So these networks can amplify competition as well as amplify cooperation. It's oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing. Um, I mean, I guess a tip for anyone gardening at home, should they, I mean, can, can you go to the store or the gardening store and get uh, mycorrhizal fungi? Do they come in solid form or liquid form? And can you add them to the soil to make your garden work better? Yeah, I mean, you can go and buy them from garden centers. The que- whether they're going to do much good, I mean, I think some would probably be helpful and some might not be, but it's an unregulated industry and there are few industry standards. So it's very hard to know. Um, if you were at home and you wanted to find out, then the best thing to do would be to do your own experiment, you know, get your geraniums or whatever you're growing, um, or maybe something you're growing from seed, um, and do an experiment. Have some parts that you add your store-bought inoculum to and some pots you don't and see which do better and then you can find out for yourself but it, it there's you know, not all these products are going to work as well as the others one thing that you can do to to support microbial communities in the soil is to make sure there's lots of organic matter you know using compost not using inorganic fertilizers if you use inorganic fertilizers you know just like pellets and um, chemical fertilizers you're not contributing to the structure of the soil not contributing to the um, this, you know, to live in the soil, microbes need a place to live, and so soil structure is important. Organic material turning over, uh, all of this is something you need. So you can um, you can look after the health of the soil by uh, reducing inorganic fertilizers and increasing the amount of organic material adding. So what? Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a chicken and egg problem, but how would you rejuvenate dead soil? Let's say you know, a field that had monoculture and it was exhausted. I mean, do you think with what you know, you'd be able to rejuvenate the field more effectively? You know, would you go in with organic matter and mycorrhizal, uh, you know, liquids or whatever it is, or spores, and you think you could regenerate a field more effectively than what's currently done? Well, I don't know about me personally. I think there are lots of people who could regenerate those fields better than others. And I think the people who would be best at doing that would be people who took a microbial point of view. Um, and you could do that in a number of ways. Some people would come and add a a lot of, um, or some people would add a kind of biochar. Some people would add compost. Some people would use um, kind of compost teas, which are microbial, basically microbial liquid, microbial inocular, kind of fermented um, organic matter, which you can add to the soil, which rejuvenates, which re-inoculates with microbes. And so you can have this bustling microbial community again. And um, so, yeah, so by you know, dead soil means dead because there's nothing living in it. And m- most of what lives in the soil is microbial. And so the first thing to do to restore dead soil would be to pay attention to microbes. And there are lots of ways to do that, as they say. Yeah, is there any, is, are microbes more important than fungi or are fungi more important than microbes? Or that's a, a meaningless so question. Microbes, well, my, microbe is a kind of general term. It just means micro, microscopic organism. And so some people, fungi are an interesting case because in one sense, they're a microbe because they're micro, they have microscopic spores and yeasts are a microbe because they're microscopic. But lots of fungi grow into these networks, which are in some sense microscopic because they, their cells are very thin. But then again, you can have very big fungi. In fact, the largest organism in the world is the fungal network in Oregon. Uh, and so and mushrooms, uh, you know, the fruiting bodies of these fungal networks, those certainly aren't microbes because you can see them and hold them. Um, so fungi have this funny, ambiguous uh, status 
but uh, but microbe is not really a technical term. So um, I tend to think of fungi as as microbes, but but with this caveat that they're often not microscopic. It's a kind of paradox. But but fungi are, are potent decomposers. So they they'll be you know, they'll be in the soil. They'll be turning over nutrients. They'll be spinning these organic um, and inorganic nutrient cycles. Uh, they'll be they'll be doing all sorts of crucial um, metabolic work in these soil ecosystems, which you would associate with with microbes. What What are some of the other roles of uh, fungi that that you've learned about that are just amazing and probably not commonly known? Gosh, there are so many things. So, I mean, there's one of the amazing and little known aspects is um, is the relationships that fungi form, which produce lichens. And lichens are organisms that many people would have seen, but probably wouldn't have thought twice about. These are these organisms that you see growing on roofs or fence posts or cliffs or high tide lines on beaches. And they're a mixture, they're a symbiotic organism. They're a composite organism made up of a fungus and a photosynthetic partner, which can either be an alga or uh, photosynthetic bacteria. And actually they're a composite of many more organisms usually as well. So they're, they're a symbiotic organism. Um, and they, they can grow on the most exposed and weather-beaten surfaces. When a new volcanic island is thrown up in the middle of the Pacific, the first things to colonize the rock are lichens because they can obtain their nutrition uh, from by the fungus can use these acids and uh, pressure to digest solid rock. And the photosynthetic partner can eat light and carbon dioxide and produce energy that way. So they're a self-contained ecosystem and they can live in these, uh, these astonishingly uh, barren surfaces, some of the bleakest places in the world, the Antarctic dry valleys, which are used to simulate conditions on Mars because they're so scorched by UV, incredibly dry temperature fluctuations, uh, lichens thrive in these environments. And because of this, these fungi play a really important role in the biogeochemical cycle to the planet because it's out of rocks that we get minerals becoming soil. So these lichens are kind of the go-betweens between the dead rock and uh, soils full of life and organic matter. So that's one example of how um, how fungi and fungal, rela- fungal relationships can um, play a part in these bigger cycles, which you don't tend to think about, but which are enormously important. Um, yeah. And then there's the de- decomposition is another, you know, just straightforward decomposition. We We don't think much about this at all, but if we could pause decomposition, then bodies, you know, plant bodies, trees would pile up kilometers deep. Um, we live in the space that decomposition leaves behind. And, uh, and fungi are the most prodigious decomposers. And they, you know, they return, through their decomposition, they return, um, I think, 85 gigatons of uh, carbon to the atmosphere every year. We can turn, we return about 10. So they're, they're major, a major force in the nutrient cycles of the world. Um, so that's the thing. You know, we, we, a lot of the time we don't see what they do because what they do is so essential and so staple uh, to the functioning of ecosystems that we just take it for granted. I've heard that they're present in, I guess, the absolute harshest environments on Earth, like uh, the Chernobyl reactor. I heard there's like a, 
a fungus growing on the wall in the most radioactive part that produces melanin that's like a pigment in, in skin uh, and it thrives there. Yeah, exactly. And th these are really interesting fungi because they appear to be able to use radiation as a source of energy, a bit like plants use it um, and can capture the energy in sunlight. Um, some, it's radiosynthesis. It's a little, it's a little unclear quite how this happens, but it seems that melanin are a key part of both their ability to uh, survive in these environments and their ability to capture and harness this energy. But yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, the blasted reactor at Chernobyl is a is a hotbed of these of these fungi who seem to be able to um, not just survive, but they grow towards radioactive hot particles. If you know, they, they they seek out radiation, it's amazing. I guess there's nothing that can't be decomposed in the right environment <laughs> or the right yeah. I mean. Yeah, exactly. The right fungus in the right place. I mean, it is an entire kingdom of life, and there are lots of ways to be a fungus. But for sure, within the fungal kingdom, the metabolic abilities are, are, are just amazing. And we don't even know half of it. We really um, just begin. Yeah, in, your, in, your um, in your book, you said like, I think 94% of all the fungi in the world are undiscovered. How is that estimate made? And if we wanted to look, where would we look to find more of them? It's a good question. Um, so species estimates are really hard to make, and especially because fungi are really hard to divide into clear species. So that's a rough estimate um, based on how many species you've, based on species accumulation curves, it's called where you, how many species you find as you increase your sampling area. So you extrapolate from that and you can estimate how many we, we don't know about. But in reality, it's very hard to call a fungus a species at all. Some mushroom-producing fungi, for example, you know, there's a mushroom, it looks like that kind of mushroom. It's identifiable as a chanterelle or a porcini. Much easier, but still within those recognizable species, there are lots of subtypes and hybrids that, uh, that we still don't have a good handle on. And then there are lots of fungi that just don't produce visible fruiting bodies at all. And... For these fungi, we can, under, we can explore that world through DNA sequencing, which is how we know about them. But then it presents a whole load of problems because you end up with all these unique genetic signatures, no way to assign them to an existing taxonomic group. So fungal, the taxonomic system that we live within was devised for um, animals and plants. And it, it's very hard, has a very hard time coping with fungi or bacteria. Um, so if you wanted to find more, as you asked, then we would look both in places that people hadn't looked, and looking means sequencing DNA. Um, it also means trying to culture the fungi. You know, if you grow them in a, put them on a plate with nutrients, do they grow? And if they grow, can you separate this one from that one and grow them separately? That's very laborious, and lots of fungi can't be cultured. So looking basically means DNA sequencing. Um, and you'd look in places that people hadn't looked, but you'd also look in, people, in places that people had looked. Um, and a lot of the time you'd find new fungi um, that hadn't been described because people weren't looking for them or because people were looking for a particular sort of fungi and not looking with a big, wide net, um, a broad net. So you can, um, there are lots of possibilities. One of the interesting things, I think, is to look in really extreme environments, as, as you point out with the Chernobyl, um, fungi, you know, I think this is where we can find fungi with astonishing abilities. And a group 
uh, working in Pakistan found the plastic degrading fungus by by sequencing and culturing the fungi they uh, they isolated from rubbish dumps. Um, so I think by by looking in in places that have potential interest, we might find those fungi that um, that we might be able to apply or in some some sort of situation. In the human body, I've heard a few scientists talk about the myco biome instead of the microbiome. So what role do we understand that, that fungi play in the human body? So on the whole, so it's starting very broad, on the broadest level, animals um, and humans included tend to have more um, intimate relationships with bacteria than fungi. And also our biggest killers, our biggest and most deadly pathogens are also bacteria. Plants tend to have uh, more stable relationships with fungi and their biggest killers are also fungi. So there's this nice, interesting continuity between uh, partners and killers and these spectrums are not always clear cut at all. So in our gut, we have lots of bacteria and our care. Um, we have some fungi, and but the, most of the fungi on our bodies are on, on, on our surfaces, in our orifices, um, so yeast and and they play a really important role as kind of um, gatekeepers. And the fungi in our gut are much less studied than the bacteria in our gut. They do exist. But on the whole, in the human body, we're dealing with um, surficial fungi and usually yeast. I mean, there are, some, there are some quite interesting cases where people have been found with fungi growing inside their brains. Um, and you can have some types of yeast which infect your brain and produce all sorts of horrible symptoms. So um, things can go wrong. But, um, but it's not like we have you know, a mycorrhizal type relationship. We don't, we don't have tight, a tight partnership with a network forming fungus that we can't live without. Yeah, I've heard of, um, you know, like a foot fungus. Um, I've heard of, you're right, funguses on surfaces of people, but uh, I guess in our guts and internally, I mean, I've heard that, you know, women have gotten yeast infections. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure about uh, internally what the role is. and But there are a bunch of scientists, I would think, that are studying the microbiome. Right? For instance, yeast infections and people getting uh, toe fungus and, things like that. But um, I would also think that there are people studying the internal fungi in us. I would think there there are some, and I guess that would be called the mycobiome, right? Exactly, the mycobiome, yeah. Um, the mycobiome would refer also to those that live outside us too. Um, I, I haven't heard of any fungi that live inside us playing major roles. Not that it means they aren't there. Um, we know so little about who does what. Um, you know, it's very easy to describe these, micro these microbial communities with sequencing. It's very hard to work out what they're doing. Um, so we have lots of descriptions. It's a bit like in the 18th century when people were going around collecting um, specimens from all over the world. And it's a period of description and collection, um, and less, less, less dealing with the questions of what's doing what and how are they doing it. We're kind of at that stage in the microbial sciences. I mean, there are, there are people studying function too, but on the whole, function is is it you know, in your complex community or guts to work out who is doing what, when, yeah. and how. These are not easy things to tease apart because by nature of experiments, you have to isolate variables. But once you've isolated the microbe, you're in an artificial situation and it's not in the community that would be in your gut. So 
how do you then work out what it's doing in your gut? So um, fungi seem to work with plants quite quite closely. What about with bacteria? Do fungi have an adversarial relationship, or do you, do they have a, like a mutualistic relationship with bacteria in the context of plants or in the context of other environments? Yeah, I mean, so fungi, fungi have microbiomes too. They have bacteria that live in and on them. And just like us, um, a fungi being more closely related to animals than, than plants. Um, so some of these bacteria flowing within fungal networks, you know, they move around. They, bacteria use fungal networks like highways travel through the soil. Um, but lots of the time, they play key roles. And so fungi wouldn't be able to survive in certain environments or to strike up relationships with certain plants unless they have that key bacterial symbiont. And if you cure fungi of these bacterial symbionts, you often find a loss of function in that fungus, just as if you cure a human of their microbial symbionts. Um, of course, there are just as you have, if you have bacterial symbionts, you also have bacterial diseases because there's this fluid relationship between um, between helpful and harmful relationships. So um, there are also fungi have key relationship with the virus um, and viruses. There's a was a great study where there's a grass grown in that grows in tropical hot soils, and if you grow the grass without the fungus, it can't survive in the hot soil. And if you grow the grass with the fungus, but you've cured the fungus of the virus, then the plant can't grow in the soil. So the plant needs the fungus, but it needs the fungus with a virus living inside it in order to survive. And these situations are not at all uncommon, these nested um, relationships. Um, so this world of the fungal microbiomes, the, the bacterial and fungal relationships, this is really fascinating and a fast growing field. And and um, we don't know as much as we should, but more and more is being found out. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very exciting world because a lot of what we think of as fungal traits, you know, it, and this can be quite important if you have some industry or application, if you're growing a fungus for some purpose, and, and you want to improve or to change its behavior, a lot of the time you need to think about the bacteria that it's, a re, that it's relating with. And a lot of the time you can achieve what you want to do by thinking about its partner bacteria. So some fungi have viruses that, uh, that infect them as well? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fungi weird. produce imagine, lots of... Imagine a, a, a parasite that was infected by a fungus with bacteria in it, and then a virus was in that and then the parasite infected a person. It's weird. You can have, like you said, layers and layers and layers of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's wild, isn't it? This is how life works. There are viruses that have viruses living inside them. There's bacteria that host bacteria. Bacteria themselves host viruses. And you have, there's this great situation I read about recently where you have uh, an insect, a mealybug, that has a bacteria living inside itself. But inside those bacteria, other bacteria living inside the cells and each of the, the the insects the bacteria and the other bacteria all living like russian dolls all of them depend on each other to complete certain key parts of their metabolic life cycle so you have this interdependence on multiple scales um it really stretches your mind you know but this is this is the story of life yeah that is that's amazing oh. it makes it hard to be reductionist and to I mean, if you are reductionist, like a lot of what medicine is, 
it just tells me that you're really not going to understand what's going on. But then again, how do you contemplate what's going on if some of these are, are so complicated, these uh, interplays, these networks? Like, you know, how do you culture a bacteria to study it if its behavior is, is meaningless or changed by, by its lack of context you know, and interaction? I think this is, I think you've hit it exactly on the, the nail on the head. That this is one of the most mind bending um, and worldview shifting aspects of these relationships. And it, it changed the way we think about how we know, like how do we investigate, like how do we know that this works like that if we've chopped it into a tiny piece and looked at its behavior in an artificial situation? Do we know any more about what it's doing in its natural environment or not? And so, I think it really it challenges us to ask questions about reductive uh, approaches, and it challenges us to ask questions about what we mean by individuals, what do we mean by cells, biological cells, you know, and what do we mean by um, autonomy and independence and all these other uh, really major concepts that we take for granted in human life, but actually which are far from clear cut in the biological world. So what is your is your role in all of this? Is it an elucidation of what's actually going on so that scientists can study it properly? I mean, what you know, what role are you playing? What role do you want to play? So I, my research focuses on mycorrhizal fungi and their relationships with plants. Um, that's where I've done and I'm doing my active research. Um, the book is a book about fungi in general, and it's a it's a communication project to think about these organisms in, in a bigger picture kind of way, um, which is a different kind of exercise from doing doing research, um, conventional research, where one's focused on quite precise questions um, and dealing with them in quite methodical ways. So it's been fun to write the book and to think broadly, to range broadly across the fungal uh, kingdom and in different aspects of human relationships with fungi. Um, but, but as I say, most of my research focuses on on the relationships between plants and the root fungi. In your, in your research, are there any other uh, life forms that we're missing? I mean, this would be a big discovery, but you know, fungi, yeast, plants, animals, bacteria, viruses. Is there anything else that that I don't know is is being examined that maybe a new uh, form of life, a whole new class of life, or no? Yes. So there, I think there are two two things that come to mind. Uh, one is archaea, which is it is not they're not bacteria. They they were thought of as bacteria for a long time, but actually they're a distinct kingdom, uh, a distinct domain of life even, um, and we know very little about them. And but they're really important, and they're in loads of places, and they do loads of hidden things, just like you know fungi and bacteria do. So archaea are, are, are one area which is understudied and and as opening up new questions and new understandings. And another which is fascinating is the infraterrestrials, the so-called infraterrestrials that live deep inside the, below the surface of the earth, you know, kilometers deep in the crust of the earth in under enormous temperatures and pressures. When people are discovering these now, researchers using very deep drilling um, cores deep into the earth to study the carbon storage deep in the earth, it's called the Deep Carbon Observatory. But what's turning out to be the case is that there are thriving, rich communities of microbes living deep inside the earth um, under astonishingly 
intense conditions, some of them thousands of years, of years old, uh, growing very slowly, what we'd call extremophile, you know, lovers of extreme. Um, but this is a whole new um, type of habitat, a whole new world of different types of habitat. And it's just, just now uh, becoming, um, started to be studied. So I think that's a really interesting place to think about life happening, because on the whole, uh, people have not thought about life taking place deep um, under the, you know, in the crust of the earth. Yeah, that is true. Well, very good, Merlin. What, what's the best way for people to uh, to find your book? Is it uh, widely published yet, and in what forms will it be, and where is it? Yes, so it's published uh, on twelfth. It's published on Tuesday, twelfth um, of May, and it's available from all major retailers. Um, if you want to support indie booksellers, then you can go to bookshop.org. Um, and otherwise, it's available audiobook or ebook or physical book wherever you would normally buy your books. Okay, well, very good. And where can people find out more about uh, you specifically and, and getting contact if they have questions? The best thing to do is to go to my website, which is merlinsheldrake.com. Okay, very good. Well, Merlin, thanks for coming. This is, uh, I mean, literally a whole new world that uh, most people don't see. So thanks for shedding light on it. And uh, it's been a good talk. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.